Hello, and welcome to the Keepers of the Flame podcast. This is a show to shine a light into the darkness, to empower women, their support networks, and our communities to weather breast cancer, because together we weather the storm. But on this ocean, every wave brings you closer to home. Hello and welcome back to Keepers of the Flame podcast. I'm Joyce Williams, your host, and this is episode number 33, Understanding Inflammatory Breast Cancer with Survivor Lindsay. I've said this in previous episodes, but y'all, I used to think that cancer was just one disease that was simply named based off of where it was found in the body. So bone cancer, cancer found in your bones, lung cancer, cancer found in your lungs, breast cancer, cancer found in your breasts. But little did I know that there is just so much more to it than that. There are just many different flavors of breast cancer. And the best way that I can explain this is like going to the grocery store and you're trying to pick out toothpaste. You can't just say to somebody, hey, go find some toothpaste, right? It's you go and there's 30 different brands. And then within each brand, it's, well, is it minty or is it whitening or does it have baking soda or is it cinnamon or bubble gum? And then there's all the different sizes. You have travel size, large size, and every size in between. The same is true with cancer. It comes in different sizes, different shades, different flavors, and it's not just simply where in the body was it found. In episode number 15, Breast Cancer Basics with breast surgeon Dr. William Burak Jr., we talked about most of this kind of stuff and how breast cancer was broken down into its different types. We talked about invasive versus in situ. We talked about the grade, whether or not it was found in the ducts or the lobules, or and then also like the hormone receptors, if it was estrogen, progesterone, positive or negative, and HER2 negative. And just a quick recap, invasive meaning it left the container of the ducts that it grew in, in situ meaning that it stayed inside. The grade referring to just how crazy wonky eyed the nuclei looks of those irregular old wonky cancer cells. And then where it was found, if it was found in the lobules that produce the milk or in the little tunnels that connect those lobules all the way out to the nipple. And today we're going to shed some light on yet another flavor to breast cancer. This is called inflammatory breast cancer or sometimes referred to as IBC. We're gonna talk about what exactly inflammatory breast cancer is. What are the signs? What are the symptoms? And we're gonna hear today from an IBC survivor, Lindsay, where Lindsay is here to shine a light more on this flavor of breast cancer and to share her personal journey through diagnosis, treatment, and past that threshold of survivorhood into no evidence of disease or NED. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Tell us just real quick where you're from and what do you do for a living? Um, I'm originally from Jacksonville, Florida, and I've been, I guess, Savannah, Guyton area now for seven years, which is kind of crazy that I've been here for that long. Um, mostly I'm a stay-at-home mom. I have two little boys. I've been married for 12 years, and I am a makeup artist. 
That's right. And you do some you do some amazing work with that too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're here today to talk about your personal journey through cancer, but also to shed some light on inflammatory breast cancer. And I think that IBC is one of those breast cancers that many just don't really know much about. And not just the general public, but even within the cancer sister world. There are a lot of people that have been diagnosed with breast cancer that are still unfamiliar with this kind of cancer, the IBC. So today, kind of shining a light on that and educating people a little bit more. IBC has its own, I guess, sisterhood in a sense, because it presents itself differently and it sets women up for a different set of obstacles. And I guess let's start first by telling us what is inflammatory breast cancer? Um, Inflammatory breast cancer is a different type of cancer because one, it's not normally detected through mammogram doesn't present itself with a lump majority of the time. Uh, the best way that you can kind of describe it from my studies is that it's almost like a cotton candy web inside the breast. When you're diagnosed, usually it's always at stage three because the fact that it has uh, spread to your skin, your lymphatic system, and your lymph nodes, it presents itself with a red rash. Sometimes it's itching, sometimes it's swelling, There's it's warm to the touch. For me, I had my nipple started being extremely itchy and there was nothing that would appease it. I tried, you know, different topical creams, steroid creams, different things like that. And it just was so itchy. And then it was red and almost looked like I had a bug bite, like a spider bite. Um, And I went to the doctor and they were like, oh, it's just, uh, you know, you just, something must have bit you. So, and normally most women that I've spoken with, that is what their doctors say, because it is such a rare breast cancer. Most people don't know about it we're taught like to look for a lump so whenever you have a red itchy breast you don't normally think it's breast cancer you think it's often misdiagnosed because people just don't know about it right the majority of women that you know you speak to they have been misdiagnosed I know I was told I had mastitis I was told oh it could be a yeast infection I was told it was eczema so I mean I went through several rounds of antibiotics several topical creams finally my IBC side was double the size of my left breast a diagnosis, which, you know, finally I was like, something is going on. Like something's not right. Something's up more than just a rash. Right. And the best, the only way that you can be diagnosed with IBC is through a skin punch biopsy. So basically they take a little machine, almost like an eraser size. They do a little metal twist to the skin and take that out and they can do several different places on the breast. And testing that tissue is how you are diagnosed with IBC. Because a lot of times even ultrasounds, mammograms do not pick it up. Yeah. Now you say that it's rare. So just to let everybody out there having an idea of what that translates to, the American Cancer Society says that IBC accounts for only 1% to 5% of all breast cancers. Correct. And the bad thing is that we don't have a, a medical code diagnosis, which makes it really hard to actually keep track of how many women do have IBC. Just to give you an example, uh, the inflammatory breast cancer support group that I'm involved in, when I first was diagnosed, there was only 500 women that were in the United States that were in our little group. And now... January is actually going to be my four-year mark since diagnosis, and we're up to a thousand women. So, if you think about how many, you know, there, how many 
thousands of breast cancer cases there are in the United States per year, less than a thousand women are IBC. So it gives it that rarity um, code, but we really don't know exactly how many women do have it because so many women aren't misdiagnosed and because there's no exact medical code for it. And as you said, just to reiterate that when people are diagnosed, it usually is late stages because when you say that there's no lump, what's what's happening, my understanding, tell me if I'm wrong, my understanding is that it's caused by cancer cells that are blocking vessels in the skin covering the breast. It's in the skin. Right. It's in our it's in your skin, it's in your tissues, it's in your lymphatics. Mm-hmm. So at diagnosis you're automatically stage three because so many women are misdiagnosed. Most women are actually diagnosed at stage four because it isn't diagnosed properly. So it, it right. does spread to we uh, with IBC a lot of people go straight to liver or bone or skin mets is, is what's very common with IBC. When we say metastasizes, what that means is that breast cancer has moved and relocated to another part of the body. And once it's reached stage four or you're living with metastatic breast cancer, there is no cure. They will have treatments for forever, basically, to try to maintain it and to keep it under control. Mm -hmm. But that once it's metastasized and it's moved, it can go to those other places that you talked about. Correct. Now, according to the American Cancer Society, one out of three at diagnosis have already metastasized. So when you say that it is likely that most of them are late stages, it is either three, as you said, or four. So that's one of the the big problems is because it's hard to diagnose. People don't know what they're looking for. You don't find it until it's later. Correct. And we know that early detection is essential. Right. So shine some more light and understand this better. You were talking about some symptoms being uh, warm to the touch, red, itchy. Are there any others that people should be aware of? For me, my breast was painful. Most people say, oh, cancer doesn't hurt, but you can get indentions. I would take my bra off and it would look like I had a line in it and it would stay like that for hours, which was kind of crazy. It's warm to the touch. It's itchy. It's red. It's painful. Uh, Sometimes women have an inverted nipple. It also looks like they describe it as an orange peel or lemon. The rind has like little deepened pores. Yeah. So that is a huge indicator of IBC is if your skin turns to that orange peel-esque look, that's a, a big indicator of IBC. And I like to tell anybody that's listening, IBC or not, anything that is not normal for you and your breast to make sure that you speak up and you talk to your provider and you keep asking those questions Mm -hmm. until you feel better because nobody knows your body like you know your body. Right. And IBC is taught, I think they said for just maybe a few hours of medical school. It's not anything that breast surgeons are focused on. And I went to three different doctors before I was even diagnosed with it because they, you know, they told me, oh, it's, you can't have cancer. I was 38 at the time. Yeah, 38. I nursed my children. And, you know, we always think like, oh, breastfeeding helps with, you know, preventing breast cancer. So it was just kind of. And did you have any family history too? No. So you were young. There was no family history. You were years away from that recommended mammogram screening. And this is rare. So hence why it wasn't on anybody's radar. Right. And the more, and I know they say to stay away from Google, but it's like the more that I Googled, the more that I looked, I was like, I really think that this is what I have. So I actually went to a walk-in clinic and I talked to the PA there and she used to run a women's clinic. And I said, I I think I have what's called inflammatory breast cancer. Have you ever heard of that? And she said, actually I have. And I said, do you think that this could be it? And she said, I do. She said, let's go ahead and set you up for a mammogram and we'll see what, what we can do for you. 
But did the mammogram show anything? The mammogram showed that I had some small calcifications. When I first heard that, we thought, okay, sure, I'm small calcifications, I'm fine. Because I didn't have that lump, but I had a, f- a few small spots that showed up that looked different. So I told my husband not to come with me to my doctor's appointment because I was like, I'm fine. It's it's no big deal. I had d- dense breast tissue, they told me. Yeah. So whenever we did go, and then they said, we need you to come back for some biopsies and other things. I was so upset because I was there by myself. I was like, I can't believe I did this. So when I did go back and meet with the breast surgeon, we thought uh, maybe I'll just have a lumpectomy. I have a few small spots. And she immediately, she said, no, you're stage three breast cancer. So at like that point, my whole world just kind of fell down. I was like, not expecting to hear that at all. Yeah. So through imaging to be able to see whether or not there are these calcifications or whatnot. And then there, and then they do the biopsy after they, I was a rare case because some women, even with mammogram and ultrasound, nothing shows up for them. So I was lucky in that sense that I did have a few little, a few small spots that showed up as well. They call them calcifications. Um, Some women don't always have that. So that's important for women out there to know. And so whenever they did the skin punch biopsy and I had a few different places that they took the skin from, that's where they were able to diagnose that it was IBC. So I was stage three. B, I guess, right. is, what it, is what it's called. So it had spread to my lymphatic system and I had a lymph node involvement as well. Right. Prior to your diagnosis and prior to Googling, had you ever heard of inflammatory breast cancer? I had not. Well, what were your first thoughts when you were diagnosed? Because most women are misdiagnosed. A lot of women are di- not diagnosed until stage four. The survival rate of IBC is five years after diagnosis. So... When you first read that, obviously I was devastated because, you know, my son was two. I found out the day before his third birthday. And my other son was in first grade. He was six years old. So at this point, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I have five years to live and my babies are so small. Like, are you kidding me right now? Yeah. <laughs> so, it feels like you just get hit by a yeah, match truck. And, and like, what ha- yeah. hang on, what? And my husband and I had just, we just bought our first home. We were so excited. And I literally, like the month before I got, was diagnosed, I told him, I was like, our life is perfect. We have everything we've worked so hard for. And then it was like, everything just kind of fell apart at that point. So I felt very helpless, very devastated. I was crushed at that point. I don't think that there's any way to truly prepare yourself for hearing the words you have cancer right no matter what there's just no no pretty way that those words can be said to anybody yeah now you've already said that yours was stage three so what that translates to is that it had not metastasized correct and so you said that you were stage three b what is your prognosis now that you've made it through treatment i'm currently no evidence of disease right now which is what your goal is with any with um, any diagnosis yeah What's crazy to me is that some people, doctors do scans all the time, and I guess we'll talk about this as we go on through the podcast, but with IBC, your treatment realm is different as well. So I had not had a scan since I was diagnosed. So after all my treatment, I was like, well, how do you know my cancer is gone? How do you know that I'm currently no evidence of disease? Because they don't do like a PET scan or MRI after I finish treatment. So it's very, you still have that in the back of your mind, you know, as each six month checkup goes by or three months checkup goes by. Are you sure I'm still cancer free? Is it there? Is it there? Mm -hmm. Like they're tiny. Are you sure? Right. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and talk about that. Let's talk about some of the treatment. How does treatment differ, if at all, with an IBC patient versus a 
just regular old. Well, with inflammatory breast cancer, because it is in your skin and your lymphatic system, it is not recommended to do surgery first. A lot of times they go ahead and do a lumpectomy or mastectomy to remove the cancer and then do reconstruction per se and then have chemo or radiation if needed. Uh, But with inflammatory breast cancer, you have to do chemo first to try and kill that disease that's in your body because if you were to open it up, they say it just kind of spreads everywhere. And so that's what's scary is if you aren't properly diagnosed and they do open you up, that could could cause it. Yeah, it could cause it to metastasize instantly. So um, I did my chemo first and then I had to wait a month after I finished chemo. Then I did, I chose to do double mastectomy because with IBC, you're also not supposed to do reconstruction for two years. That's the recommended time frame because you do have 60% chance of recurrence within the first two years of IBC. And they want to make sure that there's nothing in the way that they can treat you. Right. So, um, and then you have to do radiation. There's no option to not do radiation because they want to kill any tiny little microscopic whatever that could have been missed during your surgery. So... Let's talk about radiation for a second. Did they put anything on top, like the bolus? The bolus, yes. Yes. And for those that have not heard the uh, radiation oncologist talk in a previous episode, the whole purpose of this bolus, it's like, I called it my ice pack. So radiation can penetrate all the way through your skin. So like, let's say somebody has lung cancer. You want to get to the lung. You don't want to radiate all the stuff before that. And so their their machines can penetrate before it has the large dose of radiation hitting. And it can get to where it wants to go. But for those that have breast cancer, well, and specifically inflammatory breast cancer, which is the skin, you don't want it to penetrate past that skin. You want it to hit that targeted area. And that's the whole point of the bolus. I called it my ice pack because it was cold. (laughs) And it's just this jelly flabby thing that they put on you when they use the radiation. And the whole purpose of that is to raise the dosage of the radiation closer to the surface. So it's getting what you want it to get. Right. So continuing with treatment real quick, when they finally diagnose somebody is having inflammatory breast cancer and they run the biopsy on those cells, is it true that they still look to see whether or not it's progesterone and estrogen positive negative and HER2 positive negative? Right. Yeah. Your treatment would still go with your hormone receptors, whether you're HER2 positive, HER2 negative, and that determines your course of treatment. So for me, like I did my regular chemo and then after I still kept going through and did Herceptin um, because I was HER2 positive for the full year. So it's like here are our little outline here. You have breast cancer, big category. Within breast cancer, we're talking about the specific kind, inflammatory breast cancer, which is found in the skin, not a lump. But then within that, it's also identified as, well, what makes those cells grow? Is it fed by estrogen or progesterone? If so, they give you medicine for that. Right. So whether you have hormone blockers or different shots, that kind of stuff. I was HER2 positive and I did Herceptin, Carboplatin, Taxotere, and Progetta. That was my cocktail of of choice. But I know that they have, um, they call it the red devil. A lot of women who are HER2 negative, those are their treatments that they do. When I, when I say that it's highly individualized, it is highly individualized because even as I said in the beginning, no two breast cancers are treated the same. Even with an inflammatory breast cancer, you can still have those different flavors depending on 
where it was found, what your, the stage was, how wonky the nuclei looked, and as we were talking about now, those right. hormone receptors as well as HER2. Right. And Whether you're HER triple negative, triple positive, right. depends on you and know, your medicine. all of that plays into what your treatment plan will be. Right. So what about side effects of treatment? With me, the nausea, horrible upset stomach. Obviously, your hair falls out, but I never realized like how important your nose hair is. <laughs> Like that was my first thing to fall out, but my medicine, I constantly had nosebleeds. I had runny nose all the time, and without that hair to catch it, you just couldn't hold it. Like me sitting there driving down the road, and all of a sudden blood would just start pouring out of my nose. Yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh, what's What's happening? Um, just extreme fatigue. I try to not let anything stop me because I told my doctor, I was like, I don't have time to be sick. I'm inconvenienced by this whole thing. So I felt like keeping that mindset, not laying in the bed all day, feeling sorry for myself, obviously. You're sick and you're tired, so the days that I needed to rest, I rested. But for the most part, I still tried to get up and do yeah. my own thing. Uh, everything tasted like metal. Things didn't taste right to me, which was weird. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have mm-hmm. said there's this metallic taste. I was very blessed with that. Tastes were off, right? but I don't remember the metal taste. Right. And th- yeah, foods didn't taste right. They did not taste which right. Was, which was super weird. But my big thing was the upset stomach was horrible and no medicine would even touch it. So my son, we laughed. We called it, um, instead of diarrhea, we called it chemoria. Chemoria. That, that was my nickname. So my poor husband, I was like, you got to take the boys today because I can't leave the house. So. Yeah. so these are all side effects of chemotherapy. What about radiation? Radiation was actually hard for me. I know a lot of people say that that was easier for them. But to me... Because I did have to, I did the bolus. I did 36 rounds of radiation and I'm fair skinned. So by the end of it, my skin was like falling off in chunks. It hurt to wear a shirt. It hurt to wear my seatbelt. I had, did you have to hold your breath in your treatments? I've kind of blocked this from my memory, so I I don't think so, but... I had to lay there, and they told me to hold my breath. And to me, that it was such a mental thing, and to be completely still, and I just remember laying there crying because it's holding your breath, and it's like, when can I breathe again? When are they going to tell me to breathe? And that gave me major anxiety. And I had never been an anxious person before. So I know that sounds kind of crazy, but... Oh, no, no, no. Anxiety and I, we've, we've, we've learned to know each other a little bit better nowadays. We, I didn't know anxiety before, but I get it now. Yeah, but it's just laying there. You're in this little machine area. Mm-hmm. You've got lasers coming on you. And to hold my breath. And they say you fill your chest up with air because that protects your lungs whenever they're... Because it's such a close area. And yeah. I actually do have scar tissue on my lungs from radiation, which they, I did wind up having a scan after a certain amount of time because I had some issues and they did see a spot on my lungs and I was like, oh my gosh, it's like, it hasn't metastasized to my lungs, but they established that it was scar tissue scar from radiation. Tissue. But it was really hard just, you know, to lay there and be still and not breathe and every single day. With my chemo, it was every three weeks. So right. I had a little bit of a break in between, but driving to this place every single day. It takes an emotional toll. Yeah, absolutely. Too. And then a lot of people are like, I'm in and out. I was in there for 15 minutes at a time, which I know doesn't seem like a long time, but when you're laying there holding your breath off and on for 15 minutes, it, it messed with my mind. Yeah, yeah. Lymphedema is another side effect that a lot of people can experience. And I've talked about this before, but for those that are unfamiliar, lymphedema is basically the swelling and it's caused when lymph nodes are removed because your lymphatic system, its job is to help clean the body when there's infection or when anything's going on. If your lymphatic system is not working properly and it can't clear things out, that can in turn cause this swelling. Right. So did you have to deal with that? I do. I have extreme lymphedema. And because 
I had the majority of my lymph nodes removed. I had 26 lymph nodes removed in my armpit. And then doing radiation to my armpit, that damaged that whole area. And I had so much scar tissue build up. So basically, all the fluid that is in my arm basically had nowhere to go. It couldn't leave that area because it was trapped. So they say to keep your arm raised, keep it elevated, wear compression, don't go outside. But I live in South Georgia and I have two little boys. So not going outside in the heat's not really an option for me. So right. my right arm, which is also my dominant arm, is now double the size of my left arm which makes me very sad and we said at the beginning that you are a makeup artist yes so, so how's that had a had a role in affecting your career uh it's drastically changed my ability to do my job so it getting through that over the last two years has been heartbreaking as well so before I was fully booked I could do five six seven girls no big deal now I'm very selective if I do weddings it's less number of girls one or two girls if I do do more than like four or five I can't move my hand the next day which is hard Uh, having lymphedema makes it hard to even wash dishes wash my hair blow dry my hair um, things that people things that you take for granted yeah Yeah, I can't open jars I draw Mm -hmm. I have neuropathy in my hands now too um, so, yeah. And neuropathy is, is, uh, is also a potential side effect, and that refers to the nerve damage that can happen yes. in the tips of your, your fingers and right. stuff. I was misdiagnosed for lymphedema for a while. I did have to change doctors after my mastectomy, uh, but I did find a doctor who took me seriously and helped me with my lymphedema treatment. I found a specialist that helps with my lymphedema, got me the proper garments. This um, is something, lymphedema and or neuropathy, these are side effects that can happen to anybody that's experienced any of these treatments, right. not just inflammatory breast cancer, right. but it can happen to anybody that's had chemotherapy or, or, or surgery that removes the lymph nodes. It's a potential side effect. Right. Now, as far as lymphedema goes, there isn't really a cure There's for no it. There's no cure. This is something that I'll have for the rest of my life. And so it's about managing it. Managing, trying to, it's a weird feeling. It's almost kind of like it just feels heavy. So people say, oh, I'm bloated or swollen or, you know, if you eat too much salt, you just feel kind of like heavy and bloated. My arm feels like that all the time. And it's not just my arm, it's spread through. I have it in my like face and my neck area. Yeah. So if I do wear a bra now, I have like a huge indention where that leaves it there. If I wear it on the side here, I have indentions. So I have to wear like compression garments on my chest and my side. So it just... It definitely alters your whole life. Yeah. So, okay, dealing with this whole cancer journey, it's an emotional roller coaster, no doubt. We have good days, we have bad days. I might be laughing and thinking, oh, I'm never going to cry again. And then the next day I am flood of tears kind of thing. What emotions did you have when you were first diagnosed and how have they changed throughout the process? So, you know, it goes through waves, like you said, that the day that I was diagnosed was the day before my son's third birthday. We were having this huge birthday party for him the next day. And I just remember, you know, sitting there trying to keep it together. Is this going to be my last birthday party with my kid? (laughs) So, you know, I just was crying and I didn't want to tell, I didn't want to ruin his day. I don't want to tell everybody what was going on, but it just was hard to. Because his mom, you're trying to protect them. Because I don't want him. And he was too, thank goodness, he was too little to know what was going on. So I was more worried about my older one at that time. And yeah, I mean, it definitely, there's days where I was like, I got this, I'm going to kick AWS, like, you know, bring it on, nothing's going to keep me down. But honestly, there's no rhyme or reason who 
survives and who who doesn't. So I definitely feel like I've learned through different women over the last few years the terminology. Oh, you're a fighter. You're gonna make it. Well, you know, yes, thank goodness I did make it. But it's it's also I feel like harmful to say for women who have fought and gave it their all. They did make it. Like were they fighting? They weren't fighting as hard as me. But that's you know it's it's a sticky situation. People mean well when they say that, but then I also feel it is the term with like you know sometimes she didn't fight. Yeah, yeah just sometimes you can fight your hardest and you can and do still, absolutely right. everything right and the world right. still doesn't do as you want it right. to so. and that is a really hard painful yeah life lesson yeah it's it's heartbreaking and the bonds that i've made with women over the last few years that have ibc i've i've lost so many close friends and I don't know why I'm still here, but I'm super thankful. I don't want to say it's my life's work or my passion, but how you, you know, have created this amazing podcast and you're doing these walks and stuff. I feel the same way. Like it's my mission to share about inflammatory breast cancer because I didn't know about it before mm-hmm. to keep that going, to talk to women about it. I think it's so important to not hold it in to yeah. tell people about it to talk to people even if it's painful to to get it out there absolutely because information is empowering absolutely and sometimes life-saving right and i like to think about i say this all the time but i love this metaphor because it gives me hope and power with who i am and what my purpose is so to answer those questions of why me and why not them, there are no answers that is going to satisfy any of us because we ultimately, we just don't, we don't know. And we lose good people all the time, people that fought hard. And it's not fair. Mm -hmm. One thing that I like to say is that when I die, I want to leave behind metaphorical snow. And so if you can imagine each act of kindness is like that individual snowflake. No two snowflakes are alike. Every act of kindness is unique in its own entity as well. If you increase those acts of kindness, you increase those snowflakes, then you will leave behind snow. And I think that that's something that we can all do, no matter our diagnosis, no matter our stage, no matter our prognosis, whether we're living with metastatic breast cancer or not, we can focus on those individual snowflakes and make meaning with what we have and where we are in this world. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine that heartache and, and fear that could both simultaneously flood through our beings when you have a loss of somebody that has gone through something similar to you. So I guess two questions here. I know that it's painful, but how do you process this? And do you have any advice for our listeners who may be grieving the loss of a loved one and maybe it has sent them into this panic themselves? Do you have any suggestions for how to process or how to cope for them? I have just gone through the different emotions or whatever too. Last summer, I basically lost three women who I'd become close to within a matter of months. And what's scary with IBC is that two of the women were stage four for a long time and they were doing great. Treatment was working good, but it had come back and one passed away very unexpectedly. Um, The other had been sick for a while, gone to different treatments, and she was actually local here. And I'd gone to the hospital with her, gone with her for surgery and So being close to someone and seeing that they have the same type of disease that you do and then being there when they pass, it was very hard for me to deal with. And then another had 
was stage three. She and I were diagnosed right at the same time. We had bonded over makeup. She was, you know, super spunky personality. Uh, she was healthy. She had done marathons. She was doing great. And then all of a sudden she had this cough that wouldn't go away, went back. She was stage four. And within like a few months, she got sick and died. And when I heard that she passed away, I literally fell to my knees in my kitchen and just burst into tears because I was like, no, like, are you kidding me right now? So to me, that's the scary part is that, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. And so, you know, my best advice, to, I guess, would be to let yourself grieve those things. She loved Prince. She loved Purple Rain. And that night, um, the sky, when the sun was going down, it was pink and purple. And I just got in my car, blasted some prints with the windows down, and just cried it out. <laughs> I think that's important, so. too, for people to hear is that we don't have that easy button. Mm -hmm. I, I have been searching high and low for it forever and it just doesn't exist. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And the best thing that I can say, and, and I haven't walked those shoes, but is to allow yourself to be human. If you want to cry, cry. Yeah. If you're mad, it's okay to be mad. And, and giving yourself that freedom to feel is going to be helpful in healing, right. even though it seems counterintuitive. We are human. Right. And we are going to grieve and we're going to hurt. And when something like that happens, it's okay to be sad. Yeah. You have to, you have to have the process. You have to grieve. You have to let it out. And I did, I started going to counseling at that point because I was super low and the whole, is it going to come back to me? Just overwhelmed me and definitely seeking help helped my mind frame. And then also we haven't really talked about reconstruction yet, but I um, was finally able to do, and I didn't realize like how much not having breast um, and I also had to have a complete hysterectomy. Those things uh, emotionally messed, you know, like I didn't like who I was when I looked in the mirror. I felt very masculine, you know, they're still growing out. So, you know, here I felt like all my women parts are removed. I didn't have breasts. I had this bald head. So it's hard to look in the mirror and, and like myself. So it was kind of that whole emotional state there. Plus my losses, it was just all overwhelming and hit me at once. So, so I feel like when you're first diagnosed, you're just going through the motions. I got to get through I'm this. I'm on survival mode. Let's right. go. And then afterwards, that's when it finally hits you. It's like, yeah, how did I just get through this? And, and so I know it sounds weird to say I was more depressed after I was all better, but that was, it was rough. That yeah. was one of the things that I wanted to talk about is because I don't want women that hit that mark of, I'm quote, in no evidence of disease. Right. I've crossed the threshold right. into survivorhood now because I used to think like, I'm going to reach that mark and I'm going to be like, hell yeah, party yeah. on. And it's not that I didn't have those smiles and it's not that I wasn't appreciative, but it's almost like I was given, okay, I've made it here. Now I'm allowed to breathe. And that's when all the emotions and everything yeah. came rolling in and hit me hard. Right. And it's like, you have so much support when you're sick. It's like, people want to help you. People are there for you. There's no rule book for what happens when you're when you're cured when you're all better the, and those people that used to check on you all the time don't aren't checking on you anymore and it's not that they have to or whatever but it just kind of I think it's like a it just hits you like a ton of bricks and you're like okay what what do I do with my life now so it just it's, and I feel it's like hard. too there's also this layer of shame that gets put on top of it like right. well I was permitted to feel all those things during the treatment right. it's almost like after the fact I can give myself permission oh when I was going through it it's okay to feel right. all these things but I am done so then it's like well I shouldn't feel this way I shouldn't so right. many other people have this or that and we right. start denying our own emotions and our own experiences and then we put this little layer of shame on top right. of well let me just pressure cook it and keep it all in because I'm not allowed to be this way right. and the truth truth is that happens that's 
part of the healing journey. Mm-hmm. And it's and you'll hear, well, you're still alive. Why are you crying? You, you beat it. You're alive. And that's a hard thing. Like, yes, I'm still alive. And yes, I'm thankful that I'm here and that I've kicked it. And, and I did feel guilty because I'm like, look at all, you know, here I am complaining about being depressed because my arm's fat and I can't open a can of pickles or jar of pickles. And then I think your friend just died. Why are you feeling like this? Be grateful that you're here to see your children right now. So it's, it's definitely that survivor guilt is, survivor is guilt. real. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's not that we are not grateful. We are very grateful, mm-hmm. but we are human. We're allowed to feel too. And yeah. what I like to tell women is this happened to you. It happened to your body, your mind, your soul, and you're entitled to feel however you feel, whenever the hell you feel it. Mm-hmm. And I heard from somebody, I can't remember who exactly it was, but they said it very perfectly they said stay in your lane when you're driving don't try to get in somebody else's lane that was their story you stay in your own lane it doesn't mean that you can't empathize and you can't feel and you can't grieve but you stay in your lane own your own emotions and know that it's okay to be human that's great what would you say was your biggest challenge throughout this whole journey for me I guess my biggest challenge was We had moved here, so I was away from all my family. I was away from all my friends. So not having that close support system was super hard for me. But I was so blessed that my mom drove up two and a half hours every single time I had chemo. She came with me. My best friends came up to take turns, you know, helping me with my kids. They took days off work to come watch my boys for me. Or my um, my next door neighbor who had literally just moved in a month before I was diagnosed, she was a huge blessing with me. Oh, I'm going to take the boys to go play or whatever so that you can rest. So those type of things, you know, being a mom with cancer and two small kids, that was probably my biggest hurdle was how how am I going to take care of my kids? How am I going to cook dinner? How am I going to do homework? Those type of things. So being Moving on with life while still fighting for your life. And because they were so small, they don't understand the concept. Why can't you do things that you used to do? Or right. why are you tired? And so having small children and being sick was my biggest hurdle. And you were mentioning things that people did to help. And I, I just want to put a plug in there for the friends out there is that there's no set recipe of what you have to do to be supportive. Just something. Yeah. Letting them know that they're loved and that they're there. It could be watching the kids or bringing a meal or sending a note or just something yeah one of my girlfriends was so sweet before I had my first chemo she was in Jacksonville she sent me a little care pack with slippers and uh, little goodies and earmuffs and a box of tissues just sweet things one of my girlfriends came and um, played Scrabble with me during chemo so just little things like that I'm super grateful for that they didn't have to do those things and they chose to do those things were amazing what would you say is your biggest life lesson I don't want to say that I took life for granted, but definitely learning to let go of the small stuff and live my life. When I see people complaining about silly stuff, that's not a big deal. So same thing for my kids now. I know that you're so sad about this. Your toy's broken. It's not that big a deal. You know, or if they're complaining about wanting something and they can't have it, explain people in the world that don't have anything. So let's be thankful for what we have and letting the small stuff go and just appreciating you know you have a roof over your head you have food in your tummy you have warm socks to keep you warm at night not everybody has those things so and I definitely feel like I've given back more since I've been sick so volunteering doing things like that have helped me get through all of this as well so I started a not like you with your podcast but I started um, Instagram shared stories about IBC and then also because I have been a makeup artist I knew things to do to make me feel better about myself. And so many women don't 
I know it sounds frivolous, but like... No, no, no. It do, it's not frivolous because you talked before about how all of these things... It's not just cancer and the peace of mind that comes with that. It's all of these other things that people don't necessarily realize get stripped away from you too. Mm-hmm. Like your hair, your breasts, right. your... You know, so it's like I knew how to draw my eyebrows to right. make myself feel better. So I've gone a couple times to the hospital and given makeovers to younger girls that lost their hair, that wanted to feel better about themselves. Right. I did a video with my son, like how to tell people that, how to tell your children that you have cancer or how to draw your eyebrows on, what's going to help you with your dry skin. So things that made me feel better while going through treatment, you know, sharing about IBC. And I've had so many young girls reach out to me. Can I send you a picture of my breast? I think I might have IBC. And I've actually helped three different women be diagnosed with IBC over the last three years. So how can women find your Instagram then? I haven't been active lately on it, but uh, 22 Layers is my, I have a Facebook and Instagram with that. And so they can find information there. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I love that you've gotten involved with the community, that you've started that. I know you spoke to me. You were were one of the first people that I talked to, and you kind of walked me through what to expect with the surgery and all of that. And you've also been involved with Komen as well. Mm -hmm. So on a whole, looking at all of these things that you've done as outreach, how have they changed you? I think they've made me more sympathetic, more empathetic. Not that I was hard or callous before, but I definitely feel like it's made me more compassionate. Um, You get it. I get it now. Yeah. You get it. You can empathize on a whole other level because you truly understand. Mm -hmm. Let's circle back real quick. Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So you said that you had to wait a couple Mm -hmm. years until you were able to do that. And now you've you've gone through that procedure? Yes. I waited. It was actually um, three years and it was funny because I won't say funny but my first chemo was February 15th and when I went to the doctor's office to finally talk about reconstruction they scheduled my surgery for February 15th so I felt like it was a you know full circle okay that's when I started treatment and now I'm doing my reconstruction but another thing that we that I did not cover with IBC is that it is not recommended to do implants Mm -hmm. uh, because your skin is so damaged from radiation and it is this the tissue is damaged. So whenever you do a mastectomy, you have to do a non-skin sparring mastectomy. So they have to take all of that breast tissue, all of that skin, and close you completely flat. So they don't want to leave any extra skin. Because that's where the cancer is. Because that's where your cancer is. So with reconstruction, if you were to do expanders, the expander rips right through the skin. There's a few women that have done it and not had any issues, but literally... The majority of women that have IBC and have not listened to the standard of care, they all have had infections, failed implants, that kind of thing, because their expanders ripped through their skin. So my surgery that I did was called a deep flap procedure. I don't know if you've talked about that on your show. I have not. So this is a different, this is a different kind of reconstruction. So, um, so with a flap procedure, I did the deep. So they basically take your stomach tissue. So they cut me from my belly button. Uh, to my pubic bone and then hip to hip took that top layer of skin the muscles not involved so thank goodness I had had two children I had some extra skin and some fluff there and they take that layer of skin and then basically pull the rest of your stomach down so it's kind of like 
I don't want to say tummy tuck because I know people get offended when I say that, but it is basically they're pulling my extra skin down and then they cut uh, two breast mounds and they use that fat and tissue that they cut from your stomach to build a new breast. And it is very intensive because they have to reconnect nerves and have right. make sure that that flap doesn't fail. So you are in the hospital for three to five days after that Do you have feeling? surgery. In- I have no sensation yeah, I don't have, in my chest. I, yeah, I had, I had implants and I, I, don't, I don't have any feeling either. Yeah. But that's another reason having this kind of reconstruction is another reason why they, they being your providers may want to wait on reconstruction is because if you move that skin up, then you're going to be radiating skin that doesn't need to get radiated right. or whatnot. So right. get through your treatment right. and then, mm-hmm. and then address that right. issue. Is there anything else that you would like women or the general public to know about inflammatory breast cancer? If you do think you have IBC, we have a great support system. There's two different networks that I'm involved with. There's Inflammatory Breast Cancer uh, Network, and there's also Erase IBC, it's Inflammatory Breast Cancer Foundation. Those are both great uh, websites that you can go to. We have Facebook pages. One is more for family and people who think they might have IBC to answer type questions. And then one is strictly for women who have IBC. Right. Because we want to kind of keep it private. We're sharing our you know intimate thoughts and stuff. So you don't necessarily want your family or husband or whoever right. reading that kind of stuff. So it's good to have that one that... It's a closed for, sisterhood. It's a closed sisterhood. And then we have one that your families can ask questions like, how can I help? Right. So those are two great resources that if you think you have IBC or you have any questions or you can reach out to me personally, I'm an open book. I'll share whatever, do whatever I can to help you because they also have been great to help women like find doctors. MD Anderson is great. Uh, The one in Houston has a great IBC area. They actually just opened up an IBC hospital cancer area in San Diego as well, which is huge. Um, And then also Dana-Farber in Boston is a great, so there's like three doctors that kind of focus on IBC right now in the United States. Mm -hmm. And those are three places that they can go for different care. So just to reiterate to people listening that you don't have to have a lump to still be diagnosed with breast cancer. Inflammatory breast cancer is cancer that does not present itself as a lump. Right. Our motto is no lumps, still cancer. (laughs) No lumps, still cancer. Yep. What would you like this next generation of young girls growing into women to know about breast cancer in general? Be your own advocate. That's my biggest thing coming out of all this is like, if you think something is wrong, go get checked. Don't take no for an answer. Do it. You know, keep asking questions questions because nobody's going to take care of you better than yourself. So that was my big, like if I had not gone to three different doctors, would I have just brushed it aside? I'm thankful that I was diagnosed at stage three because I was persistent. So that's my biggest advice is... And you were able to make it to no evidence of disease because because it hadn't metastasized. Right. Okay. So that's my biggest advice is to be your own advocate. Don't take no for an answer and, and keep going. What about women who are diagnosed today or tomorrow? What advice do you have or what do you want them to walk away from this podcast knowing? Just know that you're not alone. It may feel like no one else has gone through this and that this is you're the only one but don't be afraid to reach out to people to ask for help that was my biggest thing is I didn't want to ask anybody for help but talking to other women who are going through it it sounds crazy but it really is a sisterhood and you know we say this in our IBC group hope always cancer's not necessarily a death sentence it's not an easy road for sure but you absolutely you know your frame of mind I think helps a lot like if you're like I got this Stay positive, um, and it really does help you get 
through your treatment, honestly, I believe. You're not alone. You may be the one that has to walk this walk that nobody wants to be on in the first place, but that doesn't mean that you have to do it alone. Exactly. Like some, and it's crazy because I've found some women that went through breast cancer and didn't tell anybody that they were sick. They're like, I didn't want people to worry. I didn't want people to know. And my first thing is like, how can you not tell anyone that you're, I mean, I'm a, I'm an oversharer. So literally like I told everybody and their brother, like I have cancer, but I feel like I, that was what I needed to do to get through it. So obviously if you want to go through it and you don't want to tell anybody that's your prerogative, but it is better to talk to somebody. It will make you feel and even if you if, if you don't have somebody that you can pick up the phone and call, if you can find one of those support groups right. online and you can right. participate when and how you feel like it. Absolutely. Or if you, you know, find the podcast or find your Instagram and you, you can still have access to this information where you know that there are people out there that right. are going through a similar thing where maybe you don't have to be quite as vocal, but you can right. still get that camaraderie. Right. You can be as active or as inactive as you want. Yeah, there's like young breast cancer survivors there's her two survivors there's you know it's it's whatever you want your journey to be exactly and 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 then also don't be afraid to reach out for professional help too because learning how to process through your own emotions whatever they are is going to be huge i mean i know I, i didn't have inflammatory breast cancer but i know i sure as heck struggle like crazy still do some days with this emotional piece mm-hmm. and having been there and gotten some of these skills, it has been life-changing. Absolutely. Ask for help if you need it, for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank We're you for having me. very happy to have had you today. Thank you. Thank you. And for all of y'all at home listening, remember that you can have no lump and it still be breast cancer. That's inflammatory breast cancer. I look forward to speaking with you guys again next week. Until then, remember that together we weather this storm. You are never alone.